0: Brexit means Brexit. An exit from Brexit. No more Mr Nice Guy. not and Notchers, this is a great idea, either. Order!
1: Welcome to The Debated Podcast. Uh, I'm afraid I'm not joined by my co-host in this episode. However, I am joined by Dan Murdoch, a British documentary filmmaker... Uh, who has come on to discuss uh, not only his past documentaries but what he's making at the moment. Uh, How are you, Dad?
2: I'm alright, Will. How's it going?
1: It's going well. Um, To begin with, I wanted to ask you about a documentary you made a couple of years ago uh, about the KKK. I wondered, how did that um, process start? What first made you become interested in um, doing a documentary on that particular group?
2: Yeah, well... I mean, it actually didn't quite work like that. It worked with me getting an email from the BBC with the subject line KKK. Uh-huh. And I'll never quite forget the moment. I was <laughs> cutting a film for National Geographic about drug gangs in Chicago. So I mm-hmm. spent six weeks doing gun crime and drug gangs there. And I was cutting it, thinking, I wonder what I'm going to do next. And yeah, that was the headline. And basically all it said was, would you like to make a film about the Ku Klux Klan? And... Um, The way things work, really, is I've been lucky enough to build up a bit of a reputation for being able to go and hang out with people on the Mm -hmm. kind of fringes of society who are controversial characters. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I'm there, kind of ask the right questions, if you know what I mean, so Mm -hmm. that I'm not going to embarrass anyone at the BBC. So (laughs) I think when they decided they wanted to do the film, there was a handful of directors that... They were looking forward to to do it and get it right.
1: Um, Now, in the film, there's one particular sequence uh, when members of the KKK are delivering leaflets uh, to people at their houses. And I wondered, how do you think that sort of, like, a bit more rudimental form of (laughs) uh, of (laughs) expressing uh, hate and political opinions, compares to what we're seeing at the moment, where we're seeing a lot of um, groups, lots of extremist groups using things like uh, Facebook and social media. Why do you think there's that sort of like disconnect? Do you think that's just the progression of time or, or what?
2: Yeah, the the night ride. Like, what are <laughs> we up to this evening are there? We're going on a night ride. Okay, what does that mean? You know, they're going to jump in the car and deliver messages of hate to people around the whole community. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's so old school. You know, that's what the KKK would have been doing. When they were formed hundreds of years ago, you know, mm-hmm. you would you'd literally ride around on the horses with with hoods over your, over your face and um and send messages. And I was I was surprised it was legal at all. But mm-hmm. um that's you know that's that's their right to freedom of expression. And you know he, the the, the guy was with in the car said um yeah look I I don't eat pizza I find it offensive when I get a pizza menu put through my door although I'm not quite sure that's the same you know there's there's just no there's no reasoning with these people but um in some ways as well I think America well it's coming here a bit more but America's always had this real stand-up get out and protest kind of culture and Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, did, uh, I spent a lot of time with the white power movement and then I did a follow-up film spending a lot of time with the black power movement. Mm-hmm. And the thing that unites them is how quick they are to suddenly find a whole load of placards, write some messages, and stage a protest—they like they do it like that, you know—and yeah. whereas you, could, you know over here it, it takes weeks of organising. <laughs> I, I was with a bunch of white supremacists who got thrown out of a Bavarian beer hall. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of speculation that they were Nazi sympathisers, and yeah. the Bavarian beer hall, understandably, didn't want Nazis in there. It's not not yeah, that yeah, good yeah. for the image, and. When they were thrown out, no, I'm not lying. Within half an hour, forty-five minutes, they had people turn up with cars with placards in, and oh. they started marching up and down the streets outside. Um, so yeah, it's, it's more rudimentary, kind of a more, yeah. I don't know. There's something actually quite, I don't know. It's a bit, bit it's a bit different from my British sensibility. I was like, yeah, oh, I can't yeah. this was actually oh, no. happening straight away, you know.
1: <laughs> I can imagine. Um, what particularly do you think is the reasoning that there are so many? Uh, groups in America that are on sort of like the extremes of society and of politics what 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 do you think about American culture particularly creates these groups
2: well it's interesting isn 't it and I mean you know i mean it 's a massive question, but I think yeah. one of one of the things you could certainly look at is America is a melting pot isn 't it i mean yeah. and there's so many different niche political views ethnicities um different nationalities there's so many different stories. Um, and holding that country together is a massive challenge. That's why that's why they love their their flag waving and their patriotism. You know, they love mm-hmm. what makes America great, and they'll you know s- they'll um swear their allegiance to the flag every day because they desperately need to to, to unite such a disparate group of people. Mm-hmm. Probably the most disparate population in the world, really. Yeah. And with that comes, of course, lots of people who have quirky, out there, weird, fringe beliefs. Mm. Do you
1: think that um, the way that these different groups are organising? Do you think that that has changed in the past few years with the election of Donald Trump? Because the KKK documentary you made was in two thousand fourteen, two thousand fifteen, I think. Uh, yeah. And I, I just wondered whether there was a, you've seen sort of like a discernible shift, maybe like a ramping up or.
2: Well, or I think that the film was actually more timely mm. than we realised at the time because. You know, we didn't know Trump was going to run. No one really thought about that. But initially, when I was asked to make a film about the KKK, they're really hard to find. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was really hard to find and get access to a Klan rally. Mm -hmm. Um, And it took weeks and weeks and weeks. And I'm out there with a camera, you know, watching the clock ticking and the money burn, thinking I really need to come back with a film. So what I started doing was digging into the white nationalists um, kind of groups instead Mm-hmm. ethno-nationalists and you know, they, they they wouldn't always call themselves white supremacists yes. but we certainly would um and it was i was amazed how alive that community of people was that community of disaffected white working class men and women um often from places like the appalachian mountains mm-hmm. um places you know mining towns without a mine really um yeah. and what struck me about that network was how much they were now starting to interconnect. So I think previously, you know, but before everyone was, was so interconnected, they would have been just these little nodes mm-hmm. of, um, of rallying cries. But now everyone's talking to each other. And you, you say, oh, where are the other members of your group? They're, oh, there's some in California, there's some in Oregon, there's some in Florida. And you're like, okay. So, it's, you know, it's all interconnected now. And I think that network is part of what gave Trump that, that surge. You yeah. know that interconnected network of people. Do you think?
1: Because um, you mentioned earlier that it seems to be that uh, sort of things that are happening in America haven't quite spread in terms of organisation over to Britain. Do you think that there's a possibility in the next few years, maybe the next couple of decades, that we're going to see more groups across Britain that um, perhaps are at the the, the the fringes of politics that are going to begin to get more organized in a way that they
2: aren't at the moment yeah it's funny isn't it because i think what we're talking about before was how quick people are to hit the streets and demonstrate mm. and protest um, and i think we are already seeing more and more of that I And mean, it always strikes me when you watch channel 4 news and you see all the brexit protesters in the mm-hmm. background um, and you remember there was the furore around Anna Soubry, yeah. you know when she was ch- you know chased chased across Westminster by the protesters yeah. um that to yeah. me feels like a different step certainly in my lifetime I'm mean, I'm 36 but mm-hmm. that feels to me like a new level of protesters interacting in the public sphere um, yeah. and and confronting each other and something that's a lot more of an american thing and i mean you know i, I love the decline of fall of the roman republic and it mm. reminds me of the last days of the roman republic where you have yeah. diff- uh, different political sets openly clashing in public forums um supporting different politicians um so yeah i think it, yeah it feels a lot more uh, kind of visceral in a way
1: yeah um you did a series recently uh, called britain's forgotten man do you think that A lot of the roots of the sort of the anger that we're seeing is in the lack of investment in public services and perhaps just the feeling that there are people in society who just aren't being cared about or don't have any stake in society.
2: Absolutely. You know, the motivation for Britain's Forgotten Men was, was pretty clear. I mean, it was just after Brexit, mm-hmm. um, far more white working class had voted for for Leave than certainly yeah. than Labour would ever have imagined. And then there was just a couple of stats that really stuck out for me. So um, white working class lads do worse at GCSE level than any other mm-hmm. group. Um, it used to be in a city black kids, but loads has been done to help that. Mm-hmm. Fewer white working class lads go to university than any yeah. other group, and it used to be in a city black kids, but loads. Mm-hmm. Been done. And so there's there's this sense that there's this giant cohort of people um who aren't getting along in life. They've had austerity forced upon them. They've got worse jobs, they've got worse living standards. If they do have jobs, um they're you know gig economy jobs. Mm-hmm. Um they're not doing very well in education. But then on top of that, when they do speak out, when they do say, hey, we're uncomfortable with the levels of immigration in our society, or yeah. by the way, we're struggling too They get called racists, they get Mm. called bigots, they get called chavs. Mm. Um, And, you know, I think you need to remember that 84, 86 percent of the population is white British. Eighty six percent. You know, that's so you've got to think this is the overwhelming, the largest social demographic in the country. Mm. Um, And they feel like their voice isn't heard. So I think it was interesting to try and put myself in that space. Yeah. Um. Have a listen to them. See what they've got to say for themselves. Are they chavs, racists, and bigots? Or you know, are they kind mm. of screaming out saying, "We just had ten years of austerity, and when we complain, you know, we get we get abuse."
1: Yeah. Um. How do you think, as sort of like going forward with um with filmmaking and with the way that people interact with media? How do you think that film journalism or documentary journalism, is going to change over the next few years?
2: I think there's two ways it's shifting, and and both which, you know, I've experienced, I suppose, particularly with Britain's Forgotten Men, in that mm. a doc used to be on the BBC, 58 minutes, um, on Channel 4, about 47 minutes. Yeah. Uh, it was a one-hour slot, you know, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, actually making a one-hour doc is a heck of an undertaking. I think an hour is too long for most docs. Yeah. And you think a lot of movies are only 90 minutes. Yeah. Um, what I liked having the opportunity with Britain's Forgotten Men was to tell each story for the amount of time it was worth. So mm. instead of doing two times two hours, I did eight times roughly 15 minutes. So the films yeah. kind of switched between 13 minutes and 17 minutes. Yeah. And I mean, that all may seem like nonsense talking about minutes but it does it does make a difference to how you tell a story and how you form a story and how you tell a beginning a middle and an end Mm. um and it's actually liberating to be released from the schedulers because now we're making for online you know i made that for bbc3 so there's no hour-long slots it drops when it drops yeah um and then at the other end of the spectrum netflix will let you make a 90-minute doc if that's what the story's worth you know, and then it'll be a one-off 90 miniter, mm. which is great. So I think this kind of being released from the vagaries of the TV schedule has, has given kind of a whole new creative impetus, and I think mm-hmm. really encourages you to home in on what your story is, the best way to tell it, and the most dramatic way to tell it, because, you know, I think one of the arts of storytelling is to inject drama into it and tell it as well as you can.
1: Mm. Um, now, uh, you mentioned sort of like online, and uh, recently made a film with Marcus Meacham uh, that I think is coming out at the end of the month yes um, how do you think that uh, the, the, the rise of sort of like online celebrities within particular groups influences the way that we um, see people reacting to the news like instead of them th- seeing things through the BBC seeing content through people like Meech and what how do, you, how do you think that impacts?
2: I, I think it's a fantastic democratisation of the entire process. Mm. You know, instead of having your news delivered to you by uh-huh. essentially the same cohort of people who have been educated a certain way, mm. generally have pretty similar views that come from, a different, from the same, same kind of direction. Um, it's been democratised and, mm. and you can hear views from a much broader spectrum. And I think what that does is really puncture the air of superiority um, the, the broadcasters tend to have, and to be mm. honest, that the powers that be have mm. when anyone can come along and, and deliver their news. Now, of course, that comes with risks, mm. because certainly if you have extreme views um, and you buy into a certain narrative about mm. the world, then you're going to only listen to people who reinforce that narrative. But this isn't really news to us. you know. If you feel yeah. one way about the world, you read the Daily Mail. If you mm. feel another way about the world, you read The Guardian both of them are peddling the same kind of propaganda that you already believe in, yeah. you know? So I, I, don't, I don't think that upsets the apple cart too much. It's just that instead of it being um, in the written press, where it's always been from, you know, pamphleteers uh, to yeah. bloggers, it, it's now much more easily accessible um, through YouTube as well.
1: Mm. Um, how much do you think that there is sort of uh, a level at which freedom of speech in Comedy in particular can be used as an excuse to just say things that will incite people rather than to have a particular point.
2: Yeah, for sure. For sure it does. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? You know, I'll do the KKK film, I'm doing the Mm. White Working Men film, and now I'm doing a Nazi pug film. It sounds like, (laughs) you know, my views are written up large, and they're not. You know, the, the reason I get these gigs is because my speciality is to get into situations with these people build trust with these people mm. and then ask them the right question rather yeah. than going in and asking them the kind of gotcha questions um other journalists tend to do yeah. and actually try and understand what makes these people tick mm. to try and really tell their story and that doesn't mean you support them it just means you've actually given people kind of enough rope to hang themselves sometimes yeah. um so <laughs> i always feel obliged to clarify that <laughs> but um with i mean the freedom of speech thing in comedy when you see the film, I think you'll get a sense of my take on it in that Uh there's a lot of people taking being very po-faced and taking jokes far, far too seriously. Mm -hmm. And jokes can be in bad taste. Jokes can be offensive. You don't have to find a joke funny, Uh you know. And uh, I think the issue I I go to I go to a free speech club night in the film where people say things that shocked Marcus. Mm. Um, and then i go to a woke night um yeah. where people make pc jokes and i mean you can make your own mind up yeah. about how you feel about that mm. um i think the issue for me is that the law has started to get involved mm. in policing what we can and can't joke about mm. um and i just think that's a, a weirdly slippery slope so you know, one person's been prosecuted for reposting rap lyrics in a tribute to one of their dead friends. Mm. Um, there's the famous example of the, 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 the non-bomb threat to the airport yeah. um, where he ended up serving jail time. And there's Marcus's joke, no matter how distasteful you find it, mm. um, it's a joke. Yeah. And I think ultimately you kind of think, is this worth all of the effort? We, you know, we've got an overstretched police force mm-hmm. who, you know, are struggling to handle violent crime at the moment. And we have got them phoning people saying, "Oh, you can't say that on Twitter. You can't yeah. say that on Facebook." I, I, I just think it's gone too far. I think, I think it's got daft. Yeah. And I also think, um, you know, if someone's an idiot and they say daft things, mm. that's the best way to find out if they're an idiot or not. <laughs> you know? Do you know what I mean? If, yeah. if we're going to say oh, you can't say that, we're never going to know if you're a bed or not yeah <laughs> so I'd, I'd, I'd much rather let them spout their nonsense and then we can all go put them in the little corner and we know let yeah don't listen to him he's crazy yeah i think i think that's a safer way of moving forward personally mm.
1: do you think that there's like an element of hypocrisy involved in this at times well there'll be people who will say that they're offended by a certain particular thing but at the same time they feel that it's all right to say something that someone else might find offensive and take it. Oh,
2: at Oh god, yeah. Oh god, yeah. Absolutely. And it's and it's um, yeah. You, you're not offended by this because I I agree with you, mm. but I'm offended by that because I don't agree with you. Yeah. And, and and I think that that is that's a massive problem. And in fact, you know, one of the things that strikes me about it is um, incitement to violence. Mm. You know, there's there's always this criticism that um that risque jokes. Um, that may be inciting violence. And this is a criticism that the left always have. Yeah. But then actually you, you can follow some of these same kind of uh, left wing characters mm. who are quite happy to condone violence against people who they don't believe in. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think calling people's Nazis is is a classic example of this. You know, if you, if you think what a Nazi really is. Mm. A Nazi is the ultimate villain. I mean, yeah. a Nazi is someone who it's completely okay for you to take out any kind of aggression and rage on. It's, it's yeah. like the ultimate evil in our society is to be a Nazi. Yeah. So you go around calling people Nazis, you know, all you're really doing is you're saying, well, they're fair game. Yeah. kind of fair gaming people. Um, and that's, there seems to be this movement towards anyone you disagree with, oh, well, they're a Nazi. Mm. Anyone who makes a risqué joke, oh, they're a Nazi. Yeah. And that in itself is kind of an incitement. So, you know, I do, I do think there's hypocrisy. I do think everyone should just calm down and chill <laughs> out. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately, having spent three months in this world, what I realised was the general tone of the film was, well, you can't say that. No, no, you can't say that. Oh, no, no, you can- No, but you can't say No, you don't, you dare say that. And it's just like, guys, come on, everyone. So, yeah, you know, I ended up not being helped, but to feel... Like, the film is slightly tongue-in-cheek, and, mm. um, yeah, you know, ultimately, Marcus is convicted of a crime. He is a mm. criminal. There's no two ways about that, and I, you know, it's very important that I, at no point, diminish the fact that this is a convicted criminal. Yeah. But at the same time, I think we all need to be able to say, this is all a bit ridiculous, isn't it, guys?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, now, you're making a documentary for Horizon about the opioid crisis in the UK at the moment. Uh, how widespread have you found it?
2: Um, You know what? I'm going to have to save that one until the film comes out (laughs) because we're a couple of months away. Um, And what I can say is we've we've got the latest research. We've got the most up-to-date data. Mm -hmm. um, We've even commissioned some exclusive research. Uh And I think when we go out, we're going to hopefully be pretty news-breaking. um so i don't want to i'd love as much i'd love to give you an exclusive will yeah (laughs) i don't i don't want to i don't want to reveal that quite yet no
1: no i perfectly understand um do you think that the uh problem that we have with medication is something that isn't just sort of like affecting the uk but seems to be spreading across the world i mean we've seen um uh, problems uh, with opioids in the US. Do you think this is something that can't just be tackled country to country but needs some sort of like broader initiative to.
2: Um, I, I'm not sure about that actually. You know, I think the US are by far the worst, mm-hmm. um, and that is a sad reflection of their health system. Mm-hmm. And you know, you go to other countries with, like ours to be honest, with better managed healthcare systems. Um, then you just don't see even close to the likes of the amounts of people on um, on powerful medication all the time. Mm. So I'm I'd, I'd not quite sure it's comparable. I think, you know, mm. like with locking people up and with executing people, America also seems to be a world leader at medicating them.
1: Mm. Uh, well, we're coming to the end of the podcast now, and I'd like to ask you one final question. Uh, the nominations for the Emmys have come out recently. I wondered, if you were ever nominated for an Emmy, what do you think you would
2: say if you won the Emmy in your exception speech? Uh, it's funny, because you do end up thinking about this, actually, because I got nominated for a BAFTA for Forgotten yeah. Men last year, and I just mm. got nominated for a Broadcast Digital. So you do think, well, what mm. am I going to say? Yeah. And the truth is, all of the films I make, because they're observational films, they're entirely 100% dependent on the people who let me into their lives, Mm. you know, the people who let me into their world. Um, And they let me in after a lot of relationship building and a lot of trust forming. Mm -hmm. But ultimately they let me in wholeheartedly and Mm. they open up and they trust me to tell their story in a way that's that's fair and balanced, not even Mm. in a way that, you know, helps them or supports them. All I promise them is that it will be fair and balanced. Mm. Um, and without them, you couldn't do any of this stuff. So it's always really about, I suppose, thanking all the people who've believed that um, I'll do a good job and and have trusted me. Hmm.
1: Well, thank you for coming on the podcast, Dan. It's been great to have you on. Uh, I'm sure we all look forward to seeing the two films coming out soon.
2: Uh, July 29th. July 29th is Nazi Pug on BBC Three and on iPlayer
1: great excellent well everyone make sure that you watch that because i'm sure it'll be uh, an excellent documentary thanks for coming on again uh for coming on i hope you come on again at some point
2: yeah let's have a chat after the film's come out let's see how people react let's let's see whether they think he's just a nazi or whether there's a space for free speech comedy
1: well i i I think that would be great I, i would certainly enjoy that Uh, In this part, I will be speaking to Angus MacDonald, who is a a documentary filmmaker who has made an astonishing uh, film recently uh, about the refugee detainment centres in Australia, the um, Manus and LaRue detainment centres in Australia. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Angus. Uh, First of all, do you think you you could explain uh, to the listeners what led you to become interested in this particular topic?
0: Oh, sure. Uh, well, I've been a, a, a visual artist for about 25 years, um, a painter primarily. But a few years ago, um, I've travelled over to Greece during the period when uh, what they called in Greece the summer of refugees during 2015 and 2016, Um a lot of, a lot of uh, people seeking asylum, fleeing the civil conflict in Syria mostly, but some other countries uh, in the Middle East began crossing the Mediterranean into a, a number of islands scattered down the east coast uh, of, of, the, of the Aegean, the uh, Greek islands. Uh, and at that time, uh, some people I knew over there, because I'd spent a lot of time in Greece when I first left art school and I had a lot of friends there, had begun getting in touch with me, telling me all about the experience and about how Greek uh, people and local communities in those islands had uh, been extending the hand of uh, hospitality to those people that were arriving by boat. Uh, so I decided to go over there and, and have a look at that myself because uh, back here in Australia, um, I'd been getting increasingly uncomfortable about uh, the federal government's own approach to uh, the treatment of people that arrived here by boat, of course, in much smaller numbers. So I went to Greece. I travelled around to a lot of the really uh, the flashpoint areas in Greece where uh, uh, very large numbers were arriving, did some volunteering, talked to a lot of people uh, there on the ground. and I was, I was really astonished by the, uh, the humanitarian uh, attitude of a lot of the Greek people. Uh, it's not to say there aren't problems in Greece. Uh, in certain areas, uh, there's, there's some bad camps in Greece, but during that period when they were first arriving, it really was inspirational to see the attitude. And when I got back here, I decided that I wanted to uh, begin advocating for a change in in the attitudes towards refugees here. So I began a series of films, uh, which I released free on YouTube, uh, got together with some other people, some collaborators, and we began doing that. Uh, and eventually I made a standalone film about Manus Island, uh, which, is the, which is the film that uh, is currently being in festivals at the moment and recently won uh, an award in, in, at a very good festival in Melbourne called the St Kilda Film Festival.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think has been sort of like the, uh, the, the cause of Australia's mm-hmm. particularly harsh policy towards refugees, what, what, where do you think is the, is, is the root uh, of the reason
0: that the policy exists? Yeah, well, that's a really good question, Will. Um, and, you know, Australia, as many people know, have been built right on the back of migration, uh, 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 which began in earnest after the end of the Second World War. Uh, and then later on in the 70s, and uh, the late 70s, we had a lot of uh, people migrating here, uh, after the Vietnam War, and we had a lot of boat people then. But I think the big turning point and when that really changed politically was, uh, around 2001. Um, at that, at that time, there was, um, an incident involving a Norwegian freighter that picked up, uh, about 433 asylum seekers, um, from their sinking vessel. They're 140 kilometers from a place called Christmas Island in Australia. Um, And and against international law at that time, uh, Australia refused to tamper uh, entry into its waters. Uh, That resulted in a court case um, in which a number of Australian lawyers represented uh, those refugees uh, and they won against the government. And I think uh, the timing was was very interesting because uh, the day that Justice North handed down that ruling uh, against the government in the federal court, um, was later on that day, uh, the 9 11 attacks were carried out in New York, and after that, I think the whole landscape changed politically. Uh, and the conservative government at that time, uh, used the refugee issue, uh, as a wedge issue in their political campaign. And they won office, John Howard, that prime minister, won office, uh, with the, with the immortal words that, that we will decide who comes to this country and the manner in which they come and I think ever since that time back in 2001 uh, this whole issue around refugees has been used for political gain uh, and I think it's it's still going on now
2: Mm.
1: Um, now you um, talk about sort of the the political gain uh, that is used how Mm -hmm. um, influential or perhaps uh, not as influential, do you think mm-hmm. um, the uh, the situation in Manus was on the recent federal elections in Australia?
0: Yes, well, we had a, a federal election here in Australia on the 18th of May. Um, uh, at that election, uh, the government in power at that time, that the, the Liberal National Party, who are really the authors of the current uh, hardline policy that's resulted in those those uh, people, refugees and asylum seekers, spending six years now on Manus and Nauru, they were expected to lose that election, um, but they didn't. They didn't lose the election. Uh, they, they retained government, and this resulted in um, a spike in the number of uh, incidents of self harm and, and attempted suicide uh, on Manus Island, where hundreds of uh, refugees and asylum seekers remain. And I think the reason that happened was because uh, their hopes of a resolution uh of, of them of the Manus Island uh, situation being uh ended uh, were dashed uh you know when 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 the government retained power and i think that was directly resulting in the uh, you know in that spike of uh self harm incidents mm. um, now in mm. the
1: uh in the film you um deal quite a bit with sort of the 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 mental health problems that um the individuals uh, within the detainment camps uh, have been suffering how, yeah. did, how 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 do you think uh, aside obviously from uh, shutting down the detainment camps can these um, people be helped in regards to uh, their
0: mental health issues yeah well that's a good question i mean probably the you know the 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 source of the of the, of the of the very critical mental health issues that are facing those people um, are, are quite clear, and that is that you know they've had uh, you know many of them arrived there uh, fleeing uh, persecution or conflict. Um, so they many of them they did dangerous journeys. They undertook dangerous journeys to arrive here. So of course many of the people were relatively traumatised when they first got here, and then if you if you compound that with six years of uh, of first detention and now just an indefinite uh, state of captivity there on Manus and Nauru, obviously without any uh, timeline or or any hope or an an end game for them, this is obviously going to affect their mental health. So uh, without actually taking them off Manus or Nauru, uh, the major way to alleviate the mental health problems at the moment is to make sure they get adequate care, medical care. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, that's there's no access to adequate medical care for those types of issues um, either on Manus or Nauru. I mean the governments will the, the federal government will say that there is adequate medical care but there, but there actually there, there isn't um, and um, in fact people who have um, attempted self-harm uh, and suicide subsequent to the recent election are sometimes just thrown into a local watch house uh, they're not attended to in a medical sense at all, uh, and I, I'm not uh, I'm not levelling you know any accusations at the the local authorities, the PNG authorities on Manus Island, because it, you know they simply just don't have uh, the capacity to deal uh, with this critical uh, mental health crisis, which is really what it is. Mm. Do
1: you think that mm. um part of the problem with the way that a lot of people uh, view the refugee situation is because there is quite a lot of um, negative portrayal of refugees in a lot of the media do, do you think that's sort of like something that has hardened perhaps people to the uh, situation in for example Manus and Nauru uh,
0: I think yes I think it's you know absolutely the case uh, I mean if you if you look at the way in which uh, the government has made it very difficult for the media to access um, Manus and Nauru over the past six years, particularly Nauru, but also Manus. And, in fact, just uh, just this week, uh, a senator from the, uh, the Greens party, Nick McKim, who travelled to Manus to see the men, was denied entry uh, and deported back to Australia. Now, he's a member of the federal parliament, uh, and he wasn 't even allowed to visit, so if you if you take that on the first hand that 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 uh, difficulty with accessing with broad access so that we can see what 's happening, uh, that isolation, if you like, that invisibility, and if you combine it with the sort of fearful rhetoric that has been thrown around for years uh, to denigrate uh, refugees and asylum seekers, you know that they 're criminals. Uh, that they're, tr- they're trying to, they're trying to jump the queue, that they're trying to get a better life, uh, that they're a threat to our way of, of, of our, the threat to our way of life. Now, th- these types of things are continuously, um, said to the Australian public. Uh, and because we can't see for ourselves, because we can't meet them, um, there's really nothing in, in, in the conversation there to refute those claims. Uh, and that that has resulted in in a in, in the public at large either being indifferent to the to the situation being faced by those people or sometimes often uh, an acceptance that what what the government's saying the way they're labelling uh, refugees and asylum seekers is true. Now yeah. you um, uh,
1: mentioned the uh, senator; he was recently denied access to mass. I believe that there's been also a lot of um, protests. Uh, recently, um, do you think you could uh, tell us a bit about what's been happening there and what um,
0: uh, what what the yeah, protesters sure. hope to achieve? Yes. Well, um, on the 19th of July, just a few days ago, that was that marked the sixth anniversary uh, when the Labor government first declared that. Um, that anyone who arrived by boat uh, would never settle in Australia. And that was really the beginning of of this policy that's that's happening now. So in marking that six years, there were massive protests uh, by the general public, by Australians uh, in capital cities all across the country um, to protest Madison, Nauru, and to call for the closing. On top of that, uh, as I said, Senator Nick McKim, a Green senator, was denied entry um, to the transit centres in Manus and deported. But on top of that, in the last week, there's also been, um, interestingly and and very unusually, uh, some pressure being exerted within Papua New Guinea itself. And the new new Papua New Guinean Prime Minister, Prime Minister Marape, has called for the Australian government uh, just yesterday to... Uh, declare a timeline for when Manus will be closed. Uh, and this has been also supported by the the governor of uh, Manus Island himself, Charlie Benjamin, who has also said that the Australian government needs to step up uh, and do something about this because it just can't go on. So there has been a little bit of movement, um, and it's very interesting to hear Papua New Guinea speak so openly about the need to do that, to do this, and, and they're really responding to the to the mental health crisis that is um, uh, that is growing amongst all the men on, on Manus at the moment. So these are new, these are new things that are being said, and I hope that they're going to be uh, effective.
1: Um, mm. uh, now you talked about uh, some of the political implications in Australia, and we've seen in um, Britain recently uh, a hardening mm-hmm. of uh, rhetoric regarding refugees. Mm. Uh, and immigration and uh, tomorrow we'll be finding out who the new british prime minister <laughs> is and it could very well yes. be yeah um uh, <laughs> boris johnson now yes. he he has expressed some <clears throat> uh, sort of support for uh, australia's yes. uh, policy regarding this do you think that it would be a mistake and why do you think it would be a mistake for britain to adopt such a sort of a, a negative Policy as there is in
0: Australia at the moment. Well, yes, I know that he's expressed um, some support for our uh, approach. Um, so as you know, Donald Trump. Um, now, I think it would be a, I would be a problem for the UK, a, a very large problem, and for several reasons. The first thing is that with the with, with the the very vocal um, expressions of uh, by the by, the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea now, and and the local governor, who's quite a big political figure in Papua New Guinea, I think we're starting to see probably the end of this policy um, right now. So I, it'd be very interesting to to say uh, to see the UK's new Prime Minister, if it is Boris Johnson, to uh, recommend that they adopt a policy now that has proven to be such a failure here in the twilight of that policy, hopefully. Um, the second thing is that uh, it's probably not broadly known um, outside, uh, you know, Australia, uh, uh, across the world in the West, but uh, this this particular policy has been ludicrously expensive. Uh, it's violated the human rights of those innocent people. Um, it's really, it hasn't, it hasn't, presented any type of solution at all um, to alleviate the issues surrounding those people that have, have sought our protection and safety. All we've done uh, at great expense is added to their suffering, uh, and we haven't really solved anything in terms of resettlement uh, or getting them ready for resettlement. Uh, so I think, yes, it would be a very big mistake, particularly when there are a, a very... Many alternative approaches, humanitarian-based approaches, available that are being adopted in other places in the world. So, yes, I hope that the UK doesn't follow along the lines um, of the Australian government.
1: Well, I think we can uh, we can both hope that. Uh, Now, uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah, recently um, at the start of the podcast, you um, said that the uh, film had. Um, won at the St Kitts Film Festival which I believe is a qualifier for the um, Oscars uh, for the Oscars in that category uh-huh. uh, what I mean obviously apart from winning the Oscar uh, what do you hope uh, <laughs> what do you hope to uh, achieve with sort of the the greater publicity that this will um, naturally bring to the film
0: yeah well that's right uh, the, the the St Kilda Film Festival that we we were recently awarded Best Documentary there, which was a big surprise. Um, and we shared the award with every, every man on Manus and everyone who was, was involved in making the film. But obviously, um, I began this whole, um, journey into filmmaking because I really wanted to uh, contribute to change in the attitude. So, um, whatever, However far this film can go, and as many people, as many eyes on it that we can get on as possible, and as much recognition as we can get, is only going to act to shed more light on this issue, and and um and that's a really good thing. So yeah, we're pretty excited about um you know that recent success we had, and and we you know we'll continue to try and. Uh, uh, Pushed to see if it can be selected at further festivals, and yes, it was an, a, an Oscar <laughs> qualifying <Yeah. laughs> festival, which is a bit of a head spin. But um, uh, that's certainly a long way off. Uh, mm. I guess that the, the recognition's nice, but yes, the whole the whole reason why I got into this um, was really to try mm. and raise the awareness of, of of this issue and advocate for the change. So if mm. if our film can contribute to that in any way, we'll you know we'll be very grateful. Well,
1: mm. um, I wish you all the best with that. And uh, finally, Thanks, well. um, mm. you're going to be, uh, uh, or you start making a, a feature-length documentary on uh, humanitarian approaches to <clears throat> refugee protection in the Middle East. Do you think you could uh, mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about that?
0: Uh, sure. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you, I guess, if you look at this uh, this particular film that we've just made about Manus, you might look at that film as uh, as a treatment of the problem um, uh, and the, the feature documentary, the project that we're developing at the moment uh, might be termed more as the solution and uh, what we're doing is uh, we're planning to, uh, to create a feature length documentary about, a, about an amazing refugee camp uh, on the Syrian border in Jordan that's home to around 80,000 Syrian refugees, and it has consciously decided to bring uh, a collaborative humanitarian approach to the way they look after the, those people who have had to leave Syria, been forced to flee their homeland. Uh, and, and our plan is to create a feature film uh, around the experiences of a particular character in that, in that camp uh, as a way to show that um, Positive humanitarian approaches work uh, that, uh, uh, and they provide real solutions. So you were pretty excited about that. It's in the early stages, but this is something we're planning to uh, to commence in earnest um, next year.
1: Mm. Well, um, I, wish I, like- and, uh, I wish you all the best. with And I wish uh, you all the best with the film and hopefully uh, getting the the, the the camp shut down and, you know, the, the, the people to uh, have much better lives than they uh, currently are so angus mcdonald thank you for coming on the podcast
0: oh thanks for having me well it's really lovely to talk to you
1: thank you for listening to the podcast if you want to email us you can email us at the debated podcasts uh, at gmail.com you can tweet us at debated podcast on twitter uh, like us on facebook and i hope you enjoy the next episode